The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. It's Tuesday, May 3rd, 2022, and I'm your host, Josh Nelson. Yes, Tuesday with the new episode of the Sox Machine Podcast, because the White Sox and Angels series was a unique four-gamer that started on Friday and finished on Monday. The good news, the White Sox split the series thanks to outstanding starting pitching in their two victories. Of course, one would believe that it would be Dylan Cease and Lucas Giolito who shut down the Angels offense. And that's partially right. Dylan Cease was masterful on Monday and we'll gush on him later. But Vince Velasquez had a very inspiring performance helping blank the Angels this past Saturday. Is what we saw from Velasquez sustainable? And that weird ninth inning this past Sunday that saw the White Sox down by six runs rally to score five. Is that offensive explosion a possible catalyst for the White Sox to turn their season around? Of course, we'll chat about Dallas Keuchel and ponder how much longer he has with the White Sox. And the Southsiders travel next to the north side to face the Chicago Cubs in a Crosstown Classic in the first part of two parts of this season on Tuesday and Wednesday. Ryan Herrera of CHGO will join us later in the show to help preview that series from a Cubs perspective. Lastly, we'll answer your questions in P.O. Sox. A lot of show for you, so let's get started. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. And Jim, the White Sox split with the Angels, and it was in large part to outstanding starting pitching performances from Dylan Cease and Vince Velasquez. Yeah, just like we expected. Cease and Velasquez, the linchpins of the rotation. Of course. What do you make of the Velasquez start? So let's start there, because that was the biggest surprise over the weekend. Not great weather, of course. There was the rain delay, and you have that great moment when Velasquez is just... In rhythm, and he is facing Mike Trout, the best player of our generation. And it is pouring rain, and he may be the only pitcher on this planet who wanted to continue facing Mike Trout in that at bat. He was really feeling himself 86 pitches, 
five and two thirds innings because of the rain. He only allowed four hits. It was scoreless and he struck out six. What do you think of that start? And is it possible that it's sustainable? It's, uh, you know, I'm thinking if we take what we've seen following the White Sox, like watching the White Sox get shut down by various nondescript pitchers. Um, you know, a lot of it is, you know, maybe some specific White Sox weaknesses, but also, you know, there's been the weather, there's been the, uh, specific 2022 conditions of the ball and the humidor and everything like that. So if we've watched the White Sox get frustrated and stymied by pitchers who are not name brand, then it only stands the reason that occasionally the White Sox should benefit from the situation to where like all of a sudden, like a Vince Velasquez is the guy shutting down your offense. Um, you know, especially like the angels, you know, if you think about pure regression, they hadn't been shut out in a game this year when there are so many shutouts left and right. Like I think at uh, one point on Monday, I think the only two games that were finished, uh, you know, one was the white Sox and angels. The other was the Cardinals and Royals were both shutouts. That just seems to be, I think Cardinals Royals is one nothing. So, I mean, that's just how offenses are going right now. So, you know, if you can, you know, take off your White Sox goggles a little bit and say just, you know, what's the rest of the league supposed to do or supposed to be acting like in these conditions? Well, occasionally I think a Vince Velasquez should be able to pull off a start like this to where like, where'd this come from? Why is this happening? How come this offense is getting shut down by this guy? Uh, however, you know, I think, you know, to be a little bit more fair to him or to celebrate his start, because that just sounds like some random occurrence, like he did pitch really well. Uh, we've seen at various times with his arsenal, like a really good curveball here, a really good slider here that says like, oh, that's what they've been working on. That's why the Phillies stayed with him so long. That's why the, well, I shouldn't say that's why the Padres picked him up because the Padres also picked up Jake Arrieta. They're that desperate for innings that uh, Velasquez <laughs> was just a, a, he had a pulse in an arm, so they picked him up. But in the case of the White Sox, you know, singling him out for $3 million, like, oh, that's why they saw him. And then just, he could not execute that pitch. He would fall behind. He would have to lean on the fastball. The slider would spin on him like, oh, this is why he was freely available for $3 million because, you know, he just can't execute another pitch besides his fastball. He, he's shown that before. So, it, you know, perhaps just a case where, you know, this is, you know, the him throwing as many good sliders as he can throw within the containment of one start. However, you know, James Fegan wrote a good story about just everything everybody's been working on and the delayed start to their plans because of, you know, how late in the winter he signed and how just uh, random and erratic and uh, rushed together the entire spring was that maybe it takes a little bit longer for something Ethan Katz is working on to just kind of show in the results. So I think, you know, it, it came at an interesting juncture in that, you know, he and Dallas Keuchel are kind of teetering back and forth as to which one Johnny Cueto might be more likely to replace. And for the time being, you know, Velasquez put everything together. Like he definitely earned another start. Now the other ne- next start may be something that completely cancels out what he just did. And he's going to be floating around a five to six ERA for as long as he's in the rotation. But I think it was valuable for him to show what he could do for a start, like why the White Sox signed him, get everybody off his butt a little bit, <laughs> just to say like, okay, he's he's clearly got major league stuff. It just, you know, he might not have a major league ability of sustaining it for five to six innings at a time, but the stuff occasionally pops up. Um, it, it's just more of a matter, I think, uh, from, from this point, just getting, getting another start, seeing, you know, what it looks like, and then seeing like as the weather warms up, as the wind changes to maybe be more friendly to hitters, a guaranteed right field, uh, as the league 
tweaks the baseball without any telling anybody. Uh, just as these various <laughs> things unfold in the direction of hitters to overcorrect, uh, then I think that's the next step in Velasquez. But for the time being, very nice start. Nothing about that start, I think, in the results was fluky. It's just more of a matter of the ability to execute those pitches uh, that he happened to be uh, snapping off one inning after another for a very charmed day. Yeah, again, I'm going to be referencing this stat all season long, but the called strike whiff rate for Velasquez against the Angels. His four-seamer had a 37% called strike or whiff rate. His knuckle curve, you mentioned it, Jim, 50%. That is really high and very effective. His slider was at 27%. His sinker was at 30%. Maybe this is the best we're going to see Vince Velasquez for this season, but there is something out of this type of performance that you can hang your hat on, Jim. Mm -hmm. And even if Cueto is ready to go, at least Velasquez, I think, has some valuable attributes in his arsenal that, yes, you can make the case he could be part of the White Sox bullpen. He could help Ronaldo Lopez tag team some swing situations if the White Sox need someone to eat a couple of innings. We're going to talk about Dallas Keuchel in a moment, but let's get to Dylan Cease, who is the golden cog of this series. It is voted upon by White Sox fans that follow us on Twitter at Sox Machine and following me on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh. Huge turnout for this particular vote of the series. So thank you guys so much for voting and over 60% voted Dylan Cease as the golden cog for the White Sox. A brilliant performance 11 strikeouts and seven scoreless innings. He only allowed one hit. He did not walk a single batter. He struck out Mike Trout three times. One of those strikeouts was on a changeup. And I just mentioned Velasquez is called strike whiff rate. Ceases, four seamer, 30%. Slider, 35%. Knuckle curve, 33%, and his changeup was at a ridiculous 67%, and it completely caught the Angels hitters off guard, as in they probably didn't see any video of this particular pitch. Jim, this was a masterful performance by Dylan Cease. Are we watching live in real time Cease reaching another level of his performance? It's hard to imagine him getting much better with the stuff that he has. Like when I look at his last uh, you know, few starts and the no-hit stuff that he showed early in the first half of the uh, Royals game and then this start, uh, when he's at his best, it's hard to figure out like how to hit him. Like, yeah, I, I'm glad he's on the White Sox. Like it's the kind of start where if you were starting against the White Sox, three innings in, I'd say like, ugh. This is like, I just hope they don't get no hit. Like that's a case where uh, they, they, they're going to look hopeless. Cause uh, yeah, th I thought this start was really cool because the sequencing, like he had all his pitches and it's the kind of start to where you could say like, wow, Yasmani Grandal really called a masterful game back there. Or Yasmani Grandal didn't have to do anything because like you could just dial up whatever you wanted to. And it looked great. Like there, there was uh whatever Cease was going to throw was going to make the guy calling pitches look great. Like there was that three uh, pitch sequence to Andrew Velasquez where he just like dropped a knuckle curve inside corner, buckled the knees, dropped a knuckle curve right below the zone. But I mean like, you know, coming straight down, it, it, it was high enough to where it fooled Sean Barber, I think was the ump. <laughs> Sean Barber got fooled a lot this weekend. Uh, but you know, that was a yeah, nice strike that Grandal called. And then a fastball 
inside corner, uh, just uh, right at the top inside part of the zone, strike three, three pitch strikeout. Like I laughed out aloud at all three pitches. Um, yeah, that's just the kind of the stuff that he has is just, um, yeah, you look hopeless. It's like, it reminds me of Chris Sale, I think, in a way that like Lucas Giolito does not remind me of Chris Sale nor Lance Lynn. And that just when the stuff is clicking, uh, it, 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 you know, hitters, their knees buckle. And then when they don't buckle, they're just, uh, behind the fastball or locked up on the fastball because they're afraid of, uh, you know, having the knees buckled. And then when they reinforce the knees and they're ready for the, the, the fastball, that's where the changeup comes in. And he only threw two changeups, but I mean, like, that's a case where they were either perfectly sequenced and that just the hitters were not ready for it. Um, or just, it's a case where, um, you know, just everything else was working so much that all he had to do with was throw a strike with the pitch. That's, uh, 18 miles per hour slower than this fastball and hitters just, they're already thinking too much and already covering for too many velocities and breaks and locations to where they just, their bandwidth is, is they're out of it and they just can't process a pitch that location, that speed. Uh, and, and so they just, they, they, they watch it go by, but, uh, it, it almost reminds me of the, the changeup usage. He only threw three of them, got two strikes. It's almost like bitters or something like that. You only need like a couple drops of it to change the, the taste of <laughs> yeah. the cocktail to where like, Oh, uh, now that's a drink. And that's kind of what, what it reminds me of just, it's a, a nice little, uh, flavor a few times through also takes, I think the stress off his breaking ball, because I think like the weakness with Cease, and not even a weakness so much, but the one way is human, is that like maybe in the middle innings, the slider starts to spin a bit more frequently or the curveball is elevated a little bit. And it's not just not as sharp and dynamic and hitters can get a little bit of relief there. And I think that's the value of the changeup is just right when you think that, okay, they can key on the slider a little bit. They're not going to be, uh, you know, completely wiped out by a curveball. Well, here's a changeup. <laughs> just uh boink. Yeah, just right in their uh eye level, but in a way that just uh they, they cannot figure out. And so that buys them just another batter, another matchup, and that's all he needs to do at that point because uh you know when you're at the sixth and seventh inning, all of a sudden the White Sox had their best relievers lined up. In 2020, Dylan Cease had a 17.3% strikeout rate, which was lower than Dallas Keuchel in 2020 (laughs) and we were wondering aloud Jim how in the world is that possible for someone like Dylan Cease to have the arsenal that he had and he had a 6.36 fit in that COVID shortened season last year he increased it to 31.9% one of the largest increases in all of Major League Baseball from the previous season cut his walk rate down and his fit was at 3.41 this is the no, these are the numbers before Fangraphs updates, and I'll have to go to Twitter in the morning when Fangraphs updates after this game against the Angels. But before this start, Cease is already at a 30.4% strikeout rate, and his FIP is already at 2.5. And I have to imagine after striking out 11 in seven innings, mm-hmm. that strikeout rate is going to increase and that FIP is going to drop. And we have talked about, because we've been podcasting for nine years, Jim, on just how amazed that we've been watching the transformation of Tim Anderson. When we first started podcasting, he's in the minors. So we've seen Tim Anderson's entire career with the White Sox development-wise, the struggles that he had joining the majors, and the player that he is today. I have a feeling we're kind of watching the same type of development now with Dylan Cease, where there's a lot of questions in 2020 Maybe the White Sox are not going to be able to figure it out. 
and perhaps he's a possible trade piece to help improve the team in 2021. We're now here in 2022, and for all of us that said that, we're idiots because this is not someone that you trade away. This is someone you trade for. And we had J- mm-hmm. Janice Scurrio join us for our season preview for the starting pitching. And a lot of people have been, you know, on the fantasy level and even the sports betting side, who's going to be the Corbin Burns in 2022? The guy that jumps out of nowhere to win the Scion. And a lot of people pointed at Dylan Cease because it is similar stuff. The ability to dominate a game and rack up a bunch of strikeouts. Dylan Cease could be that dark horse American League Cy Young. I don't think he's a dark horse anymore. Uh, Kevin Gossman of Toronto is pitching out of his mind, Jim. I don't know if you've seen five mm-hmm. starts, 41 yeah. strikeouts, no walks. That's ridiculous. Yes, uh, Gossman's been awesome for the Blue Jays. But Dylan Cease has arrived. And he arrived mm-hmm. last year. And I think he got shaken in that postseason start against the Houston Astros. It felt like he's still vulnerable. He can't live up to the big moment. Well, we saw on Monday... Him dominating Mike Trout the way that he did, I think gives a lot of hope that with Lucas Giolito ramping up, the emergence of Michael Kopech getting better, knowing that Lance Lynn is going to be joining this rotation soon, that the White Sox, our hopes on how strong this starting rotation could be, could be maybe just as strong as it was at the peak in 2021, in large part because I do think Dylan Cease is taking another step forward. Reminds me of the conversations we had uh, when it came to whether the White Sox should trade or keep, uh, should the White Sox keep Dane Dunning or Dylan Cease? Because it Mm -hmm. seemed like one of them might be traded just based on what they needed and how little the White Sox had to trade. And yeah, I was in Cease's corner, but not with a, I I should say a sterling endorsement, but I likened him to a stock, you know, that you don't watch like, kind of like a retirement fund, a long-term investment. You don't, you don't check in on him every day. You don't, uh, decide whether to buy or sell every day. If you see them lose, you know, 10%, you, you see the red marking on your portfolios. You just close your eyes, say like, I'll check on in six months and see how it's going. And, uh, you know, sometimes that doesn't work out. That approach doesn't work out. But in this case, you know, Dunning's fine. Like he's a good starter. I think he's more or less lived up to the expectations we thought of somebody who could handle like a mid rotation job, you know, especially if like he's your number five, you're in great shape. If he's number four, you're in good shape, you know, and then, you know, just... If, if he's number two, then you're not, you know, you're, you could use some help. Uh, I think in Cease's case, like he's a, uh, if he's number two, I think he's showing right now that like Lance Lynn, you know, his, uh, when Cease is pitching like this, like Lance Lynn doesn't need to be a Cy Young uh, vote receiver to give the White Sox what they need. I think, you know, Cease can uh, step up into that role. You're kind of being like a, um, you know, running one and two with Lucas Giolito and then Lynn can be third, which I think is, you know, uh, not what the White Sox are hoping for necessarily at an individual level with Lynn, but as a team, it's great to have that kind of reinforcement to where like a guy like Lynn can take a step back or if he's coming back from injury, they don't need everything possible from him as he's trying to get back up to speed. And in, in if you don't want to tax uh, his knee or you don't want to tax his back or whatever else barks on him over the course of the next four months, they can ease up because Dylan Cease is able to shoulder some of that load. So I think that's that's the important thing here is that just he's elevating his game in such a way that it can mask uh, 
or it can, it can pick up other roster spots. That's the that's the great thing about stars. <laughs> that's why it's so valuable when you get a guy like this is that um, he's packing two players worth of production into one spot to where uh, if Lynn comes back and doesn't look like Lance Lynn, that's fine as long as he looks better than Dallas Keuchel. That's, I, I think... Uh, that what his kind of performance, uh, that kind of margin for error that it creates. So let's talk about Dallas Keuchel. So we talked about two great performances, and Lucas Giolito started the game on Friday. The Angels jumped him in the first inning, hitting two home runs. Giolito eventually calmed down. Not one of his best performances. Uh, as the Angels, they, they threw the first punch. It was a pretty strong punch, and that's all the offense the Angels needed because the White Sox offense, which we'll definitely talk about the White Sox offense too uh, in a moment. But Dallas Keuchel. So we got this question from one of our Patreon supporters, Adam. And Adam wrote to us, Jim, when Johnny Cueto is ready to start again to the majors, who do you take out of the rotation? Does his start against the Angels give Vince Velasquez a longer look? Is Keuchel even worth putting out there with how hard he has been hit and his issues with control? I think the issues with control is the biggest thing with Keuchel right now. I think, you know, yes. earlier in the season, you know, first three starts, especially like um, the disaster, the, the the one inning, one plus inning disaster, it was terrible defense and, and, and laughable defense to where just, yeah, that's that's not going to work. You know, no matter how poorly Keuchel threw afterwards, um, it just, it was the kind of support that, you know, it, it's pointless to roll him out there if you're going to defend for him that badly. So I was more or less inclined to, you know, crumple it up, throw it away um, to a degree, you know, just, you know, say like, well, he could have done better. Tanner Banks showed what uh, uh, Keuchel wasn't doing that game. So that's worth at least filing away for future use. But just overall shape of the start, the way it's unfolded, the way that he uh, unraveled, just yeah, I'm inclined to give another shot. Uh, try not to let that inform my opinion of him going in. But when he's throwing, you know, I would say the defensive effort that he got last time around, uh, you know, this series was like a C, C minus some plays weren't made, but there were tough plays. It wasn't like the Tim Anderson, you know, three errors throwing random balls away. Jake Berger spiking a ball that, you know, Jose Abreu should have picked, but didn't like, it wasn't a team wide failure. It was tough plays that were not made optimally, but you know, in the case of Josh Harrison bobbling a double play ball, at least got one out. Like it wasn't, they were, they weren't extending innings for him mm -hmm. the way that, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the Tim Anderson disaster did. It was just more of a matter of, he wasn't getting the best possible defense, but it was, okay defense uh that was at least a fair start for okay does he have any ability to get himself out of trouble and the answer right now is no i mean like 40 pitches out of 79 for strikes like that's a terrible percentage and just the command mm -hmm. isn't there he's missing off the plate he's um the 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 attempt to establish the outside corner or like four to five inches off the plate the uh cutter inside is either you know off the plate or just not getting there like he can't tune in that inside corner to righty so right now the plate is you know it's like 26 inches wide for him but the umpires are only calling like 18 inches at best so uh it's really just not a way to live and it would seem like answer would be like to throw strikes but then he gets lit up and everybody says like oh he doesn't have major league army anymore it's really a tough needle he's trying to thread and it, it's worth asking whether he can do it. I don't think he, you know, right now there's not a whole lot of evidence that says he can, but when Cueto comes back, like, I guess it wouldn't surprise me if the White Sox tried to buy Keuchel a little bit of time with a, um, you know, courtesy injured list stint. Say like, oh, we, we still are a little bit short on starters until 
Lance Lynn comes back. You know, we don't really have a whole lot of reinforcement in the minors, so we could still probably use Keuchel throwing five innings along four runs because Jimmy Lambert can't do that. (laughs) Right now, Wes Benjamin is maybe the best candidate for that start, but his major league career shows that he's might be another Mike Wright. So there really isn't a whole lot of uh, confidence brewing in Charlotte to where like you might need Dallas Keiko throwing four unwatchable innings and hoping for a fifth. You know, that, that might be a case where that's his skill right now. The White Sox could use that through the end of May. But I do wonder, you know, if, if Cueto does start again in Charlotte and and shows what he needs to show there, and Velasquez is okay, and Keuchel continues to throw half his pitches for strikes and and be a tough bet to last four innings, like maybe uh, one courtesy injured list start <laughs> or injured list stint uh, might be what the White Sox use to get through May. And then once Lynn comes back and shows what he can do, maybe that's when they, that, at least that's my thinking right now, uh, that's maybe when they decide to move on. Using the Dodgers method of the injured list. Kind of, yeah. Just, um, you know, when the White Sox have done it before, I think the the Dodgers usually they're, you know why the I think the Dodgers method is hiding good players <laughs> like storing, st- stashing a Kenta Maeda on there to where like Maeda you know only makes 24 starts in a season because they have other guys who can make those starts um, in this case it's just more of a matter of just holding on to every possible feasible option so you don't get caught in a Padres trap to where they're signing a Jake Arrieta or like the White Sox have to lure an Arietta out of retirement. Like that's, I think, what the White Sox want to avoid. But I think, you know, at this point, I think they just, you know, like to get until Lynn gets back um, and, and make sure that he's stable in the rotation to understand like how many options they need to get through, say, like the month of June. Dallas Keuchel's first start of the year against Seattle was five innings, six hits allowed, three earned runs, one homer. He didn't walk anyone. He struck out five. Since then, in his last three starts, Keuchel has pitched 10 innings, has allowed 18 hits, 16 runs, two homers, 11 walks, and three strikeouts. You mentioned the command, Jim. He's toast. Well, it's control. <laughs> it's like at this point, yeah, it's it's teetered away from command, and now when it's a question of control, that's where it gets really. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's that, where, that's where it gets bad for him. It, it it's just it's not there, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Like, if the White Sox DFA Keuchel, I do think another team is going to pick him up. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering because we just got the updated fielding Bible stats from SIS, which is part of the gold glove voting process. And the Milwaukee Brewers have the best defense team defense in major league baseball right now. And the Milwaukee Brewers are very good at taking pitchers that maybe other teams gave up on and turning them into something useful. And I am trying to visualize how Dallas Keuchel could work with the Milwaukee Brewers because if the Brewers are playing such great team defense, if he goes up to that team and he's pitching with that defense, does he look better? But it's hard to look better mm-hmm. when you don't have any control or command of your pitches and the amount of walks that he's dishing out. I think there's a bit of a shell shock experience of what happened in Cleveland, Jim. And now Keuchel is afraid to live in the strike zone. And he's afraid that the ball is going to be put in play and his defense is not going to field it. And now we're seeing all these walks. So you, I think you got a trust mm-hmm. issue here for all parties involved. And I, you could be right. 
I, I do buy what you are selling that, oh, Dallas, your back is barking up. You need 15 days in the IL. Uh, you need a couple weeks away, quote unquote, and then we'll bring you back in case of Lance Lynn it is not fine. But I don't think, I don't think Keiko is with the White Sox when it comes to the All-Star break. I, I will say before then, Keiko will get DFA'd and the White Sox will move forward. But I wouldn't be surprised if another team picked up Keiko just to see if it is as simple as it's the defense. If he's got confidence in the defense, he throws better. Mm -hmm. But if it's the same repeat with the White Sox where he's just piling up a bunch of walks, then we know it's something with him and he has just lost his stuff. Yeah, it's a case where, you know, if he throws strikes and gets hammered, that means he's done. Whereas if he throws, if he, if he misses uh, pitches outside of the zone and creates his own trouble, he can say, well, I'm just not, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm still trying to find my, my command. Once my command is back, you'll see what I can do. Like, I think that's maybe the, uh, the tension right now that he's trying to negotiate and negotiating poorly. Yes. Negotiating poorly. Indeed. All right. So moving from Dallas Keuchel to White Sox offense, the White Sox offense scored 13 runs in four games. I'll be honest, that's not enough. They scored one run in game one. They scored four in game two. They scored five in game three, and they scored three runs in game four. Mm -hmm. The five runs in game three all were in the ninth inning, in which was a really weird inning filled with a lot of chaos. And the thing about the White Sox offense, despite the great starting pitching, is that they're just not providing a, a large enough margin of error. They are really putting the starting pitchers right now in a tight box where they cannot afford to give up three or more runs because there's a trust factor with the White Sox offense that they may not be able to produce that many runs. From this weekend and after Monday's victory, we got this question from Tim Brown, one of our Patreon supporters, Jim. And Tim's asking, are there any signs that a corner is being turned by the team or by individual players after this series? I, I think, you know, when we see when the White Sox have been tolerable or at least, you know, entertaining to watch or not hopeless to watch right now, I think they're still having clicked in a way that makes me think like they've had that kind of defining stretch that makes them really enjoyable. I think it's a matter of, you know, as we've talked about, Tim Anderson and Luis Robert making the game look fun. You're able to stretch singles into doubles uh, like we saw with the Joe Adele error, like all of a sudden single to left. You know, it's going to be first and second, but Adele bobbles the ball. And now it's second and third. Like, you know, when, if Yasmani Grandal slices a ball in that direction, and Adele bobbles it, probably not going to get two. Like, you know, same thing with Jose Abreu. Mm -hmm. Like, if he checks up, like, they, you know, just the other good hitters or the proven hitters are uh, clompers in a way. So just it's, if they're not hitting the ball over the wall, you know, or, you know, in a way that's, you know, just, you know, doubling off the wall, doubling off the base of the wall, like line drives that are hit hard, but just not high enough, that kind of contact. Uh, it's really difficult for them to generate that kind of sustained offense because they don't draw walks. So it really comes down to Anderson and Robert having that extra base power, the ability to take 90 feet when you don't expect it. And I think Josh Harrison added a little bit too at the bottom of the order, coming through some doubles, um, you know, showing his speed a little bit to give them a little bit more of a dynamic presence and, and being able to go more than 90 feet at a time. So I think that's one way they look different this year. But I think when it comes to turning the corner, I think it's uh, two things. One is like Jose Abreu still looks off, still following back a lot of fastballs. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm watching him on that. It's just, you know, I'm, when, it, when it comes to a hitter like Abreu, Grandal, I think is similar too. like Grandal just kind of seems 
in between seems like he's, uh, you know, patience is maybe working against him a little bit and that he's taking a lot of strikes and then getting into weird counts to where like he just overcompensates the next time up and maybe gets a little bit too jumpy. I, I don't think he's found his comfort level yet. Um, but those two guys, I think, are a big reason. But I think Abreu more than Grandal, just because Abreu, you know, Grandal is supposed to be the guy who keeps the line moving with walks. Low average hitter, and by, you know, maybe not low average relative to what the league's doing right now, but 232 40. He's not somebody who drives the offense with his bat, with his hit tool. Uh, Abreu is supposed to be the guy who comes through with the hits, you know, comes through with the run production. And right now he's not doing it. So I think two things will require them to make me think they've turned the corner. One is Abreu. More than Grandal. I think both of them would be great, but I think Abreu is somebody who defines the offense more than Grandal does. And then Yohan Moncada coming back at, at full strength. I think like Jake Berger is, he's shown flashes. He's shown the ability to, you know, make some loud contact. I think we're seeing that his in-game power is legit, but I think he's still learning how pitchers are working him uh, and, and still trying to figure out a game plan, a, a way to uh, defend himself, defend his weaknesses more at the major league level. So, I think a healthy Moncada replacing Berger is a big dynamic upgrade that also balances the lineup. And then, uh, you know, Andrew Vaughn getting hit with the pitch on the wrist, knocking him out for a couple games. Hopefully he comes back and picks up where he left off because I think he was the closest thing to your mean Mercedes April 2021 form. Uh, I think those, you know, mm-hmm. Vaughn picking up where he left off will help. But I think, you know, more than anything else, it's Abreu showing his well-rounded hitting ability an ability to hit the ball over the fence, you turn around some fastballs and Moncada coming back and being that left-handed bat that keeps right-handed pitchers honest. I think will be those two things that makes me think that it's, uh, you know, a sustainable offense and not just an offense that gets hot for a game or two at a time. Abreu was four for 13 in this series. He had a hit in each game. He had two walks also in the game, in this series. He only had one RBI. So that's not very Abreu-like. Yaswani Grandal is one for 13 in this series. He had four walks in this series for the White Sox. We're starting to see the walk rate go up. Tim Anderson is on a hot streak right now. And I thought he had a very strong series for the White Sox. Eight for 17 at the plate. Luis Robert, a lot is being made about his pitch selection. Yes, far too aggressive in the early part of this series. But in game four, he was much more patient. And he ends up in this series going six for 17. And like Tim Anderson, also hit a home run in the series in the White Sox victory on Saturday, backing up Vince Velasquez. Robert had the backbreaker, the three-run shot through the rain. So it's good to see Luis Robert back in the lineup. And he had a strong weekend, especially in the later part of the series, having back-to-back games with multiple hits. So Robert and Anderson, Tim, that's my answer to your question of guys turning it around. And as Jim has mentioned many times, if Anderson and Robert are having multi-hit games, then the White Sox offense looks like it's going to be something. But it's never going to reach the expectation if the middle of the order guys like Abreu and Grandal are sputtering. And I do agree with you, Jim. Maybe when Yohan Mikata comes back, he could possibly hit third. Maybe you have Andrew Vaughn batting third behind Anderson and Robert. But if Anderson and Robert, if they're getting back on track here, I still like them one, two. But you are right. If this is going to be the world beater type of offense we are hoping for at the beginning of the season... You need your middle of the order to be world beaters, and that's not Abreu or Grandal at the moment. And they don't have Aloy Jimenez to back them up. So mm-hmm. 
maybe maybe this is going to be more of an on-base, hitting a bunch of singles type of offense and not generating 250-plus home runs like we were hoping at the beginning of the season. Maybe we have to reset our expectations for this White Sox offense as time progresses. Who knows, though? We may get a different baseball <laughs> come June. Uh, we did get this question from Alec, and before we move on, as far as previewing the next series for the White Sox, and of course, answer you guys' questions in P.O. Sox. After this series, the White Sox are 9-13. and They're still in the middle of the pack of the American League Central. The Twins had a very strong series down at St. Petersburg to win 2 out of 3 against the Rays. Alec is asking, what DEFCON level would you put the White Sox at right now, Jim? I would say DEFCON 4. Um, you know, not all that alarmed just because the White Sox have some components missing that could come back and just make the lineup and rotation look a lot deeper and more stable and we'll be laughing about how much we were worried in April. Uh, but I, I do think it's like one notch above the minimum just because we have seen if it doesn't work out, like if, if they have like a, a somewhat of a 2021 twin story, we can see where the cracks are and how that would happen. So I think that's why I have it up a notch, but still, I think there, there are just too many things the White Sox can improve both with the players that are currently in the lineup and the players that are currently working their way into the lineup, into the rotation, into the bullpen to where this team could look a lot different by the end of May. We've seen big offensive performances by the White Sox at Wrigley Field, and that is going to be their next series as they face the Cubs for part one of the Crosstown Classic in 2022. We are going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors, but coming up next, it's Ryan Herrera, the Chicago Cubs beat reporter for CHGO, who will share with us the latest about the Cubs next on the Sox Machine Podcast. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. The Chicago White Sox now go on a five-game road trip, but the first leg, they are not leaving Chicago as part one of the Crosstown Classic begins this Tuesday and Wednesday at Wrigley Field. Both the White Sox and Cubs are 9-13 for the season. The Cubs' offense has been quite good. They have scored 96 runs so far, but they've also given up 96 runs. So that puts their expected win-loss record at 500, but they are currently underachieving that record a little bit to start the season. So what's causing the slow start on the north side? Well, join us as the Chicago Cubs beat reporter for CHGO. It's Ryan Herrera. And Ryan, thanks for coming on the Sox Machine podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm uh, looking forward to the Crosstown Classics always. 
always good for content, but it's always good for, you know, fun baseball games. So it's an exciting series coming up. And as you mentioned that, it, it is a fun time, but do you like this season's format? I know we're going to have the balance schedule next year, but two separate two-game series. Do you like that type of format, or do you prefer the four-game series over a weekend? I, It's tough because I do – I did like just the having the four, um, but it is it is also good. Like you get, you know, the, like you said, the Cubs are struggling right now. They're scuffling. Sox are also in, in, in a little bit of the same boat. They won today though, but that's good for them. <laughs> but so the, the, there's two games that against teams that are they entered today with the same record, right? Three is it four weeks from now? It might be a different story. They might both have gotten hot, mm-hmm. and that makes for even better baseball. They mo- you know both have gotten people back from the IL, and you know just. There's differences from three and a half, four weeks from now that, that the teams could be a different boat. So I do I do like the fact that we might see two different teams now than we do in a few weeks. But I did enjoy, like you said, having just that weekend of, of crosstown Cubs-Sox baseball. Yeah, and the Cubs will be visiting the White Sox over Memorial Day weekend. That is a Saturday <laughs> and Sunday series. So offensively, I think that's the story of the Chicago Cubs so far to start the season. The offense has been better than the White Sox. They have a team OPS of 7-11, which isn't all that great, but it's currently top 10 in Major League Baseball as we deal with bad weather and the baseball not traveling so far. Who has been swinging the hot bat so far, Ryan, for the Chicago Cubs? Oh, I think besides he, well, say Suzuki, obviously number one, I think is maybe not the, the been swinging at the best, but I think he's the biggest story right now because um, he was NL player, uh, rookie of the month, named NL rookie of the month uh, to, earlier today. Um, and before he had like an over 15 streak, over uh, 15, you know, little rut this last week. Um, but prior to that, I mean, he was obviously he went <laughs> player of the week uh, a couple couple weeks ago, or was it player of the month maybe something like that, rookie of the month I think. But you know, he he's won an award, whatever it was. Um, but he was swinging the bat really well. And besides this little rut, and one of the things is. I know Jed Hoyer talked about it a lot, and I think just the expectation was coming over from Japan, from NPB, and, and starting to face major league pitching, you know, the best pitching in the world. The expectation was that he would struggle out of the gate, and that didn't happen. He was hit, I mean, he was hitting numbers that, that weren't going to last the entire 162, but it was like he was like he completely bypassed that 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 transition period, or maybe that he you know he got that transition period over during spring training. Um, and so when the season started, it, it happened. So again, um, just he's been an exciting player, exciting to watch. And, you know, he led the team in home runs up until I think yesterday, I think wisdom might've passed him, Patrick wisdom, um, which I'll get to him as also, but, uh, so, you know, say Suzuki has been a, a nice surprise as far as how well he's been doing to start his major league career. Um, that over 15 rut of course happens. And I think that's partially from major league pitching, getting better, data on him so the scouting reports are better they know better how to attack him um so you you have to see how he adjusts to that but overall his first month of the season has been you know a resounding success um ian happ has i think he's hitting over 300 right now i mean his ops i don't have it off the top of my head but it's up there it's you know he's he has put together good months in the past so you, you do not want to look at it it's like ian happ is fixed he is ian happ that you thought he would be four or five years ago Mm-hmm. But he had a great month. Uh, one of the things is, is he's hitting uh, a lot better from the right side of the plate. So, uh, so right now he's uh, 12 for, I want to say, like 
40. No, I, I think I'm completely wrong. On that. But he's uh, he, he has his average on the right side of the plate um, has increased from where he has in the past. Like you, there's been times in the past where he's platoon as a lefty and other right-handed hitters um, have kind of taken over for him from the right side of the plate. Um, but Ian Happ has been a lot better from the right side of the plate, and you can see that. We've talked to David Ross about it, and he says not only is he just getting hits and getting on base from the right side, which is what they want to see, um, but he's also, you know, taking the ball to all field. He's not putting the, you know, not pulling it a lot. He's, if, it, if it's on the outside of the plate and he's a righty, he's taking it to right field. Um, so I think that's re- really improved, um, you know, where, he, uh, where, where, where he's been, you know, just in the past. Um, let me see. I, I actually do have it right here. He is nine for 23, uh, from the right side of the plate this year, which is just, uh, better than where he's ever been, um, from that side. So, that, but he just overall, he's been, uh, swinging the bat very well for this team. And that's, you know, again, after that sell off last year, um, Ian Happ, we had a good couple months toward the end of the year. And, but you wanted to see that extend to, this year, spring training, regular season, whatever it is. And so far that's happened. Uh, Patrick Wisdom, he was in a rut throughout the – I think it was one for his first 21, something in that range. Um, and, you know, Cubs Twitter was saying to DFA him, saying to get rid of him, right? Um, and he picked it up. Uh, that Colorado series really helped him. Um, I, I mean, anyone – you know, a lot, of, a lot of guys have success in Colorado. It's a hitter's ballpark. But that I think that really helped him. And since he's gotten out of that – um, he has been just hitting the lights. Like he hit that, you know, the home run off Corbin Burns yesterday, mm-hmm. you know, broke up at the time what was a perfect game. You know, Corbin Burns had retired the first 12, 13, 14 hitters, whatever it was. Um, and just it really looked like he was on pace for a perfect game. All of a sudden, Patrick Wisdom takes a, a low and in sinker deep to left field. And, and that's, you know, the difference in the game. Um, so he has been, you know, he, one of the things that knocks against him, he had that. I think it was over 40% strikeout rate by the end of last year. And one of the knocks is that he couldn't hit a high fastball, right? The high fastball, if a pitcher threw at him, he couldn't lay off it and he couldn't hit it. Coming into this year, you know, he said that that's his, he's changed his approach and he wants to lay off those high fastballs and he's worked on laying off those high fastballs. Now that seems so simple and easy, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, okay, okay, Patrick. Like, yeah, thank you. you're going to lay off those high fastballs when it comes to the game. But he, he has been doing a better job of, you know, knowing knowing his zone and, and taking those kind of pitches that he traditionally doesn't do very well at, um, and he, yeah, he's just been he markedly improved from the first week and a half or so of the season to to where he's at now. Um, what- Alfonso Rivas, I was gonna say sorry, Alfonso Rivas is a guy that people are excited about. He does, he has a good profile. He just doesn't have a lot of uh, at bats or plate appearances in the majors, and so it's hard to like say, oh, he's swinging the bat so well he's one of the best hitters because it is an even smaller sample size than what the rest of the guys have in a month like we consider the first month of the season still a small sample size mm-hmm. alfonso rivas has an even smaller one so it's hard to say that but he has swung the bat well he profiles as a good contact hitter um and so that's someone that people really want to get more chances and more opportunities um and so if that happens um you really want to see him you know, continue that uh, uh, as he goes on and gets more opportunities. Um, but for right now, uh, his 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 small sample size in the majors has done pretty well. Yeah, wisdom is going to see some high fastballs against Michael Kopech and Lucas Giolito. That's where they like to live with that type of velocity. 
We'll see how the White Sox do against Wisdom. Wisdom had some pretty big games last year against the White Sox. And uh, Suzuki reminds me of when Jose Abreu joined the Chicago White Sox back in 2014, mm-hmm. having that big month. And obviously it's a type of transition for Suzuki, but Abreu has been part of the White Sox core and foundation almost for a decade, Ryan. Is that the hope for the Chicago Cubs signing Suzuki is that he is going to be one of these foundation players on their roster that's going to be part of the team for five plus years? Yeah, I mean, you know, Jed Hoyer has always talked about this since, since the breakup of the core. You know, he talks about the next great Cubs team, right? And so he thought he says it so much. You, you put it in quotes, you capitalize it all. The next great Cubs team, right? Might abbreviate it if you want. Um, and that I think, you know, people had did not see the vision right away. That Stroman signing uh, right before the lockout helped. You say, okay, they're bringing in a really established pitcher. It's only three years, so you're like, is he going to be part of it? Is he not? But then you see them bring in Seiya Suzuki, and you know they're paying him 85 mil, $100 million when you take into account the posting fee, but it's over five years as well. And, and that window is when the Cubs certainly hope they're competing for championships again. So I think uh, bringing over a guy like Suzuki who, you know, while unproven in the majors, profiled as a guy who could be a solid uh, if not, you know, if not a, an all-star caliber player in, in, in Major League Baseball, um, bringing him over signaled that they knew they weren't that far off. That Jed Hoyer and everyone else in the front office knew the Cubs aren't that front off or far off, but also see say Suzuki as the right fielder um, for that next great Cubs team. For you know, a guy that can help transition this team from what they're doing now is developing and seeing what they have to when they have figured it out that he's still there and he's a, a solid part of that. It's a five-year contract and you, you know, you never really do know what happens after that. Mm-hmm. Um, but for right now, that's, that's the goal. And that's the hope for the Cubs is that say Suzuki is one of those guys that really does transition and, and, and is a big part of that next great Cubs team. Well, both games are scheduled for 6 40 PM central time on Tuesday and Wednesday. Rain is in the forecast for most of the day in Chicago on Tuesday, but it looks like it will clear up before the first pitch. Tuesday's probable starter for the Chicago Cubs is lefty Drew Smiley. Now, for White Sox fans, that puts a smile on their face because the White Sox offense does well against lefties. But Smiley has been pitching really well for the Chicago Cubs to start this season. So, Ryan, what should White Sox fans know about Drew Smiley? Well, Drew Smiley, you know, I, I think one of the biggest things that's made him really successful this season so, uh, so far is that he limits uh, hard contact. Uh, if you look on like baseball savant, stat cast, whatever you want to call it, um, he ranks in the 99th percentile and average exit velocity, which is, you know, 81.5 miles per hour. Wow. That's 99th percentile. Like, that's very good. And he's been very good at limiting it. Hard, hard hit percentage as well. Um, it's at 25.8%, which is in the 92nd percentile. Um, so when he, you know, he's not his whiff rate, his K percentage, uh, or strikeout percentage yet, uh, is, is lower. It's, it's as low as it's ever been in his career. It's actually low, the lowest of his career. If the season ended today, uh, 16.7%. Um, so he's not blowing guys away. He's not, you know, just, he's, he's not, he's not striking a lot of guys out, but when the guys put contact on the, uh, make contact with the ball, He's the, he's limiting the the hard contact that's going now. He's given up a few homers, and I think that's just based on him missing location and guys taking advantage of that. Um, but he, outside of those, he's not giving up a lot of hard contact. And I think, you know, like you said, the the Sox 
do very well against left-handed pitchers. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that balance of the Sox hitting well against lefties versus true Smiley just limiting hard contact, where that balance plays out on Tuesday or another day if the the forecast is what we think it's supposed to be. Um, but yeah, no, that's one of the things is just he has been successful in limiting um, hard contact, and that's what's helped him get four and two-thirds, five innings every single time he's gone out there so far. Yeah, Smiley's got a 2.79 ERA, and when you look at the Chicago Cubs starters, that's that jumps out of the page because when you look at Kyle Hendricks and White Sox fans know Hendricks very well, it hasn't been the greatest start for Hendricks in 2022, mm-hmm. Ryan. An uncharacteristic 5.46 ERA through his first five starts. Is there something ailing Hendricks, or is this a situation where he's had one bad start and he's trying to make up for it? I think the thing that, um, you know, uh, he's had, I think, his five starts. He's had two really good ones and, you know, one maybe okay and two bad ones, right? And one of the things he's consistently talked about is establishing his fastball low and away, down and away, which is, you know, his four-seamer, he throws a sinker as well. And that, so just based on who he's facing, you know, what, whichever way down and away is, that's what he wants to do because when he establishes it down and away, then he can start, you know, raising it. He can start throwing it more up in the zone. His changeup, his curveball, they all play off it. And his changeup has been really good. He's been getting a lot of whiffs on that changeup. I'm opening day, he had, I want to say it was 13, which he has like, yeah, it was against the Brewers too. It's 13 whiffs on the changeup alone. Um, so he, he, that changeup is working very well. It's just that when he's not establishing that fastball uh, down and away, the other things that play off it well when he is are just not working. And he, he, he you know, we talked to him on, uh, I want to say it was Friday was his last start. And if you looked at his, you know, his heat map, his pitch chart, whatever you want to look at, it was very clear he wasn't getting that fastball down and away. And when you ask about, when we asked him about it, he's like, yeah, he's like, you know, that that's obviously the thing that, that's what makes everything else kind of run for him. That's what, when he, if he's a well-oiled machine, it's because he's establishing that first. Um, and so if you just look at all the, the heat maps from all five of his starts, when he's had his most success, you could see he's getting that fastball down and away. And then everything else works off that. And when he's ha- had his struggles, whether like he did on Friday, it's because he's not doing that. So, uh, you know, he had issues last year as well. Um, he had a, a really nice run from like May to like through July-ish. A really, really nice run, Kyle Hendricks-esque run. And then the last few months of the season, it kind of he fell off and he struggled mightily. It worse, ended up with, you know, pretty much across the board, career worst numbers. Um, and so that you know, you didn't, you didn't want that to extend into this season. Um, but right now he's just not that command of that fastball is not where he wants it to be. Um, and so when that's not working, he can't really, he can't raise it. He can't throw it up in the zone anymore. Um, like he's, he gave up two home runs early um, to Jace Peterson and Andrew McCutcheon on Friday. And both of those were four seamers up and in. Um, but he said, you know, based on that was the location he wanted. But they were, but he that just told him that it was it was flat. There wasn't the movement on it. He wasn't fooling anyone. It was flat. And so I think just the inability to not get that fastball and that's you know that four seamer that sinker down. It, it when when you got those pitches, when you're trying to throw those pitches up, you're not fooling anyone. So uh, that's just something that's been ailing Kyle Hendricks. And when he and when he when he is able to do that, he's been really good. When he's not, you see the results. 
Yeah, that'd be interesting to watch on Wednesday. Hendricks has had some rough goes against the White Sox. Abreu's hitting 591 against Hendricks in his career. Roberts batting 500. Josh Harrison's batting 458. Tim Anderson's batting 375. So Wednesday is going to be a, a big start for Kyle Hendricks because if he can get back on track and get this monkey off his back and perform well against the White Sox. As you mentioned, we've seen Kyle Hendricks get hot, and when he gets hot, he's great for a couple of months, and he really helps carry the Chicago Cubs starting pitching staff. And I mentioned this, Ryan, because the games at Wrigley are always entertaining, and I'm sure Cubs fans would like this to see this team make a run at one of the wild cards in 2022. Maybe they don't have the talent to catch Milwaukee or St. Louis, but there's six playoff teams this year, and who knows the National League who could be one of those six seeds. Is that a realistic expectation for the Cubs in 2022 to aim for that six seed and make the postseason? Or are we having those realistic playoff conversations, that talk waiting until 2023? It's If we were talking two weeks ago, I would have said a postseason berth is definitely a possibility with the way they were playing the first couple weeks of the season. Um, maybe even the last week has kind of tampered expectations for sure. I mean, you saw uh, just in the last seven games alone, they've scored one run uh, four different times. They scored two runs once, uh, three runs once. And so, so they've only scored more than two runs twice in their last seven games. The offense, you mentioned it, and it, it did look better and it looked different than what we've seen from the Cubs the last few years. Out of the gate, it started to kind of come down to earth a little bit. Um, you know, you got – guys like Nick Madrigal who you guys know pretty well mm-hmm. uh, but he's he's struggled he's striking out more than you know he ever really has um, so I think the expectations have come down to do I think they can make a run at the postseason a lot of things do have to fall the right way for them to do that they have good players you know Marcus Stroman was pitched the lights out yesterday seven shutout innings of the Brewers Keegan Thompson has been the most valuable reliever David Ross could ask for out of the bullpen, David Robertson as well. Uh, and, and the, in that late inning stretch along with Rowan wick has been, uh, has been solid. Michael Givens has had one hiccup but overall has been solid. So um, they have good pieces. And if all of them are working at right at the same time, there is a chance. I mean, they could make a run at, at one of those postseasons. I think that's true for a lot of teams with the extra postseason spot. Uh, do I think realistically, will everything go right? Probably not. Um, and so I think, if you know they're four games, five games under 500 at the moment, I think it's four um, that they just haven't played that well lately. Um, and so things do have to kind of turn around. You need Kyle Hendricks, like, like you mentioned, to help carry that starting staff. You need a guy like Justin Steele to take a step forward and, and obviously get deeper into games and not not being able to pitch past the third inning. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, those yeah those again those things need to go right and they can make a run at, at one of those playoff spots. Uh, at the moment right now, I don't think that's realistic because, you know, baseball, you know, baseball, things don't always go right all the time. And so, they, yeah, that, the odds of that aren't possible. They're, they're possible. Do I see it happening? No, uh, not on May 2nd. No. 
All right. Well, you can follow Ryan on Twitter. He's at Ryan underscore A underscore Herrera. Watch him on CHGO by following CHGO underscore Cubs on Twitter or visiting allchgo.com. He is part of that show daily. He writes about the Cubs on CHGO. I highly recommend he does great work for them covering the Northsiders. And Ryan, thank you so much for joining the Sox Machine podcast. Thank you. Now rejoining me on the podcast to take a look at the Crosstown Classic from a White Sox perspective is Jim Margulis. Jim, first question. In the city, there's not a lot of buzz (laughs) regarding as far as this series. Uh, As someone that is uh, out of town, are you excited for this series? Not really. I think I'm I'm seldom excited about the White Sox Cubs series because I think I think I like that Chicago is a two team town. I also like that they can kind of live in different bubbles and not interact if you don't have to. I think that's what provides, uh, I think, a lot of variety in the baseball landscape. So when they mix, I don't think I get a whole lot of value out of it. But um, in in this case, I think it's a a situation, a a matchup that I think could help the White Sox kind of... uh, make up for that you know, eight-game losing streak that they had, that uh, you know ugly series against Kansas City to make up some lost ground. Yeah, this is an interesting week for the White Sox because winning on Monday against the Angels, thanks to Dylan Cease, that's great. That's a good way to start the week. You got two games against the Cubs. You got an off day, and then you head to Fenway to face a Boston Red Sox team that has struggled just as much as the White Sox. The Red Sox are 9-14. and as we record, they have only scored 81 runs this season, so it's a little bit better than the White Sox, but they have allowed 90 runs to start the year, and they're 6-10 and 10 away from Fenway, but they're just 3-4 and four at home. So this is an opportunity for the White Sox facing teams that are struggling as much as they are to gain some ground back and hopefully get closer to at 500 or have a winning week. So that's one big thing for the White Sox this week if they could do it on the road. But then again, these are quote-unquote road games as they get to stay at home. For the White Sox, Tuesday night, it's going to be Michael Kopech. Wednesday night is going to be Lucas Giolito. And Jim, I don't want to sound cocky. I am Mm -hmm. confident, despite how the Cubs offense started the year, and as Ryan mentioned, the last seven games, the Cubs offense has gotten cold. I believe Kopech and Giolito can shut down the Cubs offense. My question, though, against Drew Smiley, a lefty, theoretically, Mm -hmm. the White Sox should be able to hit, but he is one of the best in preventing hard contact. And Kyle Hendricks, the White Sox have had lots of success against Hendricks in the past. My question is, can the White Sox offense score enough to support Kopech and Giolito in these two games? I think they can. I think, you know, Smiley... When it comes to the White Sox success against lefties, I think everybody's kind of past the, oh, they never lose against lefties. I think that, that, that you know, having Mike Miner uh, burst that bubble a couple times last year and then just the unremarkable performances since, I think White Sox fans have lowered their expectations. I think, you know, they're right, you know, we're right to expect more from the White Sox when they're facing a lefty, but I think we've seen them be uneven enough that you can't really take anything for granted. But still, you know, just it's, it works in their favor more. It makes uh, Jake Berger more of a factor. Makes uh, Adam Engel more of a factor. Makes uh, Luis Robert more of a factor as he you know gets back into rhythm from his groin strain. So they often should have more to offer. Uh, then you know Hendricks, they faced him. Uh, they they hit him well in the spring. They've hit him well before. I think he's uh, he's somebody who might be a little bit of a right hand version of Keuchel in that you know 
he's been so good at working around 90 miles per hour in the high 80s uh, to where you just think he can pitch like that forever. But at some point, he can't. And maybe this is where, you know, it starts catching up to him a little bit. And, you know, given that he doesn't have overwhelming stuff, the White Sox, you know, just saw a guy similar to him and Zach Granke uh, and hit him well enough, even if they could have hit him better, to where I think they can sustain enough offense to figure something out. So, you know, it's hard to predict a sweep or, or expect a sweep or say like, that's disappointing that they didn't win two games out of two games in such a small sample, but it does line up well for them. I think, you know, given that they've, um, you know, they, they, they split the series against the, the angels. I think it's fair to say like, you know, if we can set aside that eight game skid uh, and, and just take the angel series in isolation, I thought that was a fine series. Like mm-hmm. they, they performed like they should no better, no worse. Um, you know, at, at a team level. And, and I think uh, hopefully that this is the kind of series that can put some distance in between uh, what the White Sox currently are and how bad they were. And we can speak about more about how bad they were in that past tense. Yeah, because if, if they can have a good week here, if they can have a winning week in these road games against the Cubs and Red Sox, they come home for a seven-game homestand, three against Cleveland, four against the Yankees. And we talk about weather so much. That series at home against Cleveland, Jim, the temperatures are going to be in the mid-70s. So we're finally going to have some type of heat wave where it's going to feel like early summer in Chicago next week. So if weather is a big factor for the White Sox hitting, they're going to have some type of heat wave next week, at least for that Cleveland series. And yeah, maybe they can fight their way back to 500. That's... That's goal number one now. After you dig yourself into this hole, you got to get back to 500. And then once you get to that aspect or that goal or over that hurdle, then you could be, all right, how far away are they from the Twins? Can they catch the Twins at the end of May um, before the schedule gets into June? That's the hope. And I'm hoping that the White Sox offense could score four runs. That's all I'm asking, Jim. If the White Mm -hmm. Sox offense could score four runs in both games, I believe Michael Kopech and Gilito with their arsenal and how well they are throwing the ball are going to be overwhelming for this Cubs offense. And that's going to be good enough for the White Sox to win both games at Wrigley. But if they cannot hit the ball hard against Drew Smiley, and for whatever reason, Kyle Hendricks is back to his prime form, it could be a frustrating couple of games for the White Sox against this Cubs team. The White Sox are better than this Cubs team. They should win both games. But I think the onus is on the offense. The offense has to pull through here. I think it's fair. I'm looking forward to seeing Seiya Suzuki. So I think that's a case where when, when you know, thinking about my excitement or lack thereof, like he's somebody I, I put it together a list of all the White Sox adjacent players who I follow over the course of a season to figure out like roads not taken or whether the White Sox missed out on somebody or whether I have a hunch about somebody being better than they've been. Will that work out? And Suzuki has been, he's on my list and, and I'm looking forward to seeing him in person. Uh, hope, hopefully that it's a case where we're not watching him do something that makes me think like, Oh yeah, that's something the White Sox missed out on. That's something AJ Pollock isn't doing. <laughs> it's a case where all of a sudden uh, the failure to not be more mm. active on that market is why the White Sox lost this game. But uh, I think when it comes to the Cubs, you know, whether they're interesting uh, or, or, you know, how, how interested I am in them, I think that's the one player I think defines my interest. We will recap this series on the off day this week, which is going to be Thursday for the White Sox. We'll have Sox Machine Live 
on Thursday, which we'll be streaming that show on YouTube, on our YouTube page at youtube.com slash SoxMachine and also on SoxMachine.com. But you guys had questions for us, and we are here to answer them next on P.O. Socks. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Socks. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our Patreon supporters, get to ask the questions. Yes, our Socks Machine Patreon supporters get to submit questions to us every single week, and we answer them here on P.O. Socks. And if you are interested in posing a question or topic to us in a future episode of the Socks Machine podcast, you can sign up at patreon.com slash Socks Machine. And Jim, open up our mailbag from our Patreon supporters. Lots of questions this week. First question comes from Benny, and Benny wrote to us, only been a fan since 2019. So are there any comparisons to the April the 2022 White Sox had to the infamous May the 2016 White Sox had that you guys mentioned sometimes? I think it's, uh, you know, there are a few comparisons, not, I would say, totally direct um, or, or, you know, an omen of sorts, but... I think in, you know, if you're looking for common threads, I think one of them would be that the White Sox had a disappointing offseason, I think, until the, uh, the very end with uh, you know, getting A.J. Pollock and Reese McGuire to kind of solve a couple of positions that you know, were you know, gaping holes. So I think um, you know, slightly different shape, but in the, in the same sense, like the 2016 offseason, they got Todd Frazier to solve one problem in a big way, and then they... Uh, went cheap the rest of the way and just try to patch thinly a whole bunch of other holes and they all kind of came crumbling apart. And we've seen that to a certain extent with the White Sox with like, say, second base and, you know, the idea of Josh Harrison and Larry Garcia uh, costing 11 million between them and, and offering not a whole lot right now. That's kind of a, a case where they did try to, uh, you know, save money and they, you know, poor man pays twice type situation. So, there is a thread there, but right now I think, you know, with Yohan Makata coming back and, you know, as, as we mentioned with, you know, Lance Lynn and, and, you know, Johnny Cueto perhaps, and just other, other players who aren't here that might be able to help to one degree or another. I, I think, you know, the White Sox don't have all hands on deck the way that they did in May, 2016 and the way it all fell apart. I think the other thing that's, I think somewhat, uh, you know, maybe, maybe common is like, you know, seeing Keiko fall apart and not provide the, the adequacy that we, we thought that John Danks might be able to, like the post-surgery John Danks, like Danks hit the end of the road um, early on in that season. They had to cut him loose. And then Matt Latos uh, also um, ran out of magic uh, to the little magic he had. So uh, they had to, that's when they had to try to find external help and they traded for James Shields. And I think we've seen something similar with, um, with, uh, you know, Keuchel not figuring it out, so that's the John Dinks corollary. But I think when it comes to Vince Velasquez being the Latos, like Ves, uh, Velasquez has a little bit more in the tank than Latos had. You might have the same ability or or lack of ability to actually see it through, and the White Sox might have to replace him, you know, mid-May the way that uh, the White Sox had to replace Latos. But I think uh, right now Johnny Cueto being somebody who might be able to offer fourth starter type quality or fifth starter type quality, like the Miguel Gonzalez type role in the White Sox rotation is something that eases the desperation a little bit. Same thing with Lance Lynn being somebody uh, whose comeback is on the horizon. uh, Even if he can just be a third to fourth starter type, like they, they lessen the desperation on the pitching front. So I think that's a case where 
There are some similarities, but the White Sox don't have to look outside for help yet, and and that makes it a little bit easier to tolerate. Well, Benny, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Kevin, and Kevin wrote to us, if the baseball gods gave you a choice, which would you pick? The White Sox turn it around, get healthy, and enter the playoffs, the team we expected, or they miss the playoffs, and the team goes undergoes a front office change like the Bulls. To be clear, in this scenario, Jerry Reinsdorf also hires the baseball version of Carne Chauvas, and they don't promote from within. I think, yeah, I, I understand the, the kind of tension between the two, but I think it's an easy choice to say the former, that the White Sox take care of business the way that they're supposed to. You know, win the division with relative ease, or at least, you know, if, if somebody else puts up a fight, great. But, you know, they win the division with a 90-plus uh, you know, wins in the column. Um, I think it'd just be too damaging to fall apart in a way that causes, you know, an implosion and an overhaul of the front office or management structure, as it were. Like just, you know, the White Sox need this boost. They need the, um, you know, they need to sustain the season tickets upswing, the attendance upswing, you know, the, 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 the way they're drawing on weekends or the way they're expected to draw on weekends once the weather improves and schools are out, you know, being a summer place to be. Uh, the TV ratings, especially when the Cubs are, are down or not that interesting and they're not expected to be interesting. Um, that's a case where the White Sox really need to make hay here. So as, as tempting as it is to imagine the White Sox with a different uh, leadership structure, now is not the time. I think it's a case where like if they fell apart a year earlier than uh, – expected or like the window closed or you know, became a lot more wobbly um, earlier than I think, you know, that's, uh, you know, maybe a case where I could see wanting the White Sox to pull the plug a year earlier. But for now, I think it's just too important to make use of this, to sustain revenues that allow them to spend $190 million on a payroll. Um, you know, we can argue and, and, and debate about you know, whether the White Sox have allocated that correctly or tell them how to spend it better, but they're spending the money the way they need to. Um, and now I think it's just a matter of having the success that makes fans continue to buy into it enough to where they can keep doing it, maybe fine tune their approach, even if it is, you know, some, you know, front office people, you know, manager that we don't have all that much confidence in acquiring and deploying the talent correctly. I'd rather have that than uh, a total collapse and hoping that the, uh, you know, that Jerry Rines or whoever can find somebody who can turn around the ship fast enough. You make good points, Jim. And I don't know what's next for Jose Abreu with the Chicago White Sox. I'd, I'd like to see him get one last shot in a White Sox uniform in the postseason chasing a championship. I don't, the future's really hazy for Jose Abreu with the White Sox. And I would like Jose Abreu mm -hmm. to have that moment of glory with the White Sox before he may have it with another team. I don't think his career is going to be done playing baseball after 2022. Yeah. I just also don't trust the White Sox current board members to be able to do what the Bulls mm -hmm. did. Because that was Jerry relinquishing control to his son, Michael, because they knew that Michael was interested in continuing to run the Bulls when it was time for Jerry to move on. Mm -hmm. There is no clear ownership change for the Chicago White Sox. Yeah. And it, they don't have anything like the Bulls had. So that was a lot of Michael Reinsdorf 
wanting to make changes that he thought were necessary for the franchise. The White Sox don't have a Michael Reinsdorf uh, to take over for Jerry. Yeah, it's a little bit of like a Wirtz situation too. And you know, now the Wirtz uh, ownership transition from uh, Bill to Rocky looks a lot uh, different than it did during their championship heyday. But just the general idea of like a, a different owner uh, getting the, you know, feeling more confident in having the reins of the team and then making some longer overdue changes. Yeah. That they wouldn't have that dynamic here, but um, you know, I think 2016, you know, to go back to that, that's a case where, you know, everything fell apart in a way that changes did have to be made. I remember like when that, that following winter when sale was traded and uh, or Eaton was traded and then Quintana was traded afterwards, you know, like, you know, in the next acquisition period uh, over the summer, just there was no real questioning about it. There's a lot of anger, a lot of disappointments, a lot of like, that was a waste of, of that core. A lot of, you know, and, and why does Rick Hahn get to do this again after failing the first time to uh, build a core and, and engineer a rebuild? But there, you know, everybody understood like that this was a an embarrassing enough collapse to where the White Sox did make some changes uh, at some levels. Like they moved on from Robin Ventura, Rick Renteria, you know, while that managing search was unsatisfying in terms of how they conducted it. Renteria was a fine guy for that stage and where the White Sox were uh, and had the experience and, and, and gravitas and, and nobody doubted that he was capable of managing a team at some level the way that like Robin Ventura never showed he was capable of running any team that couldn't run itself. So uh, there were at least a case there for tearing it down and trying something different. But in this case, there's just too much here that could still go very, very right uh, and, and really have an enjoyable summer and a little bit of a White Sox heyday that they've never had before to where you just can't really, the White Sox aren't in a position to where they can really uh, let these go to waste. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Trooper Galactus and Trooper wrote to us, the pitching is coming around, but the offense still seems mostly listless. While he hasn't been the hitting star we might have hoped the last couple of seasons, is it possible we've underestimated the importance of Yoan Makata in the lineup, given that he is a right-handed pitching killer and is one of their few patient hitters? Personally, I can't wait for his return. He's in an interesting position where, you know, just based on how poorly the offense has performed and how right-handed heavy they are, that he could, you know, maybe take advantage of this and, you know, maybe not restore his reputation so much because, yeah, I, I doubt he cares about what White Sox Twitter is saying about him or how divisive of a presence he is in the White Sox lineup and, you know, uh, the arguments had over, you know, just how well-rounded his skill set is versus, you know, how he doesn't deliver the 30-30 potential he was supposed to have when the White Sox acquired him and, and you know, go around and around it goes. But, you know, I think, you know, he's got enough to prove in terms of just getting back to where he was in 2019, but whether he gets all the way back there or just becomes like a well-rounded player who just, you know, maybe doesn't have the power we thought and is more of a good defense, good on base guy, runs the bases well enough, hits the occasional homer, is a four-win player because of the, the wide breadth of skills he brings to the table. That could be enough here, just based on how poorly the defense is played, how susceptible they are to right-handed pitching, that having a Moncada who's 80, 85% of what he was in 2019 helps his team enough. Like, I think 
when you look at what Andrew Vaughn has done and you hope that he can continue that and you look at what Luis Robert can do and you look at what Tim Anderson can do and we talked about Dylan Cease making the step that uh, Tim Anderson did in his development that you know it's taken the stress off Moncada and now you know maybe he's in a position where he can be appreciated for what he does well rather than everything he doesn't do or everything he used to do but doesn't do right now um that's I think uh you know I'm hoping what we get from this is one, a healthy Moncada who can play a hundred and, you know, 130 games. I think right now with, uh, you know, 22 games in the books that, you know, 140 is too much, maybe 130, 125 would be enough for a full season the rest of the way. And then, you know, if he gets to, you know, 15, 20 homers and, you know, runs the base as well and plays the kind of defense to where he is a three to four win player in a reduced schedule, that's great. That's what this team needs. This team needs a professional, a well-rounded professional third base. Like Jake Berger, not quite ready to fill in a role where like a Yohan Mankata absence is felt. Like I think Berger could fill that role if Jimenez were healthy, Robert were fully functional, the rotation were there. Like then I think you could you could switch to Berger or he could fill that role. And you really wouldn't feel like you were losing much because there's so much talent elsewhere. But with the talent being a little bit thin in places and a little bit uneven in places because of injuries and other weird things going on that Mankata being a well-rounded professional who does many things in an above average fashion uh, could be what the White Sox need. And, and, and as Trooper mentioned, it's a relief to have him around rather than somebody who is supposed to carry something and isn't quite good enough or isn't quite, uh, you know, whether it's COVID or other things, a full capacity player to, to do that. And I think that could be a, a blessing for him in a way that he can be appreciated for just his present set of skills. Well, Trooper, thank you so much for your question. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions to us this week from our Patreon supporters. Again, if you would like to submit a question or topic for a future episode of the Sox Machine Podcast, the only way to do that is by becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash Machine, where our Patreon supporters, they get more. They get exclusive content. Like with each podcast, we have bonus PO Socks segment where we answer all of the PO Socks questions. So we had four additional PO Socks questions that we answered instead of the three that the normal podcast listeners get to hear. Uh, you, they also get ad-free versions of the podcast and website. And when we have new Socks Machine swag, they're the first ones to get it. So if you enjoy our work and you want more, go to patreon.com slash Socks Machine to sign up. Monthly plans start at $2 a month and you can save on an annual subscription. And that will do it for this episode of the Socks Machine Podcast. Thank you again to Ryan Herrera from CHGO joining us to preview the upcoming White Sox-Cubs series. And if you just discovered the Socks Machine Podcast, you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts like Spotify and Apple Music. And the Socks Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? 
Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.